0: So glad you're with us this morning. We're starting a new series today uh, called Now What? And basically we're just taking the opportunity to say now that Christ has risen, what are some of the big things that we need to deal with in the future as far as what difference does that make in our life? Today we're going to talk about questions. And questions are an interesting thing. If you really examine your life and and your brain, what's going on in there, you are asking and answering questions almost every minute of the day. Some of them are just simple questions like, what am I going to eat for lunch today? And then some of them get a little bit more complicated, and they say, how long is this guy going to preach, and am I going to actually get lunch today? And you know that's true because you know I've gone over a few times, but I actually did time this one twice this morning, and I should be done early today, okay? You You can applaud. That's okay. Go for it. That's fine. I applaud if I can get done early. You know, some questions seriously are deeply personal. They're questions about who am I? What's my purpose? What am I about? What's life all about? Questions are attached oftentimes to pain in our life. In fact, every pain we have in our life, we have questions around. The questions of why. Why this pain? How long is it going to last? Is it ever going to go away? The fears in our life have questions attached to them. Fears like, is this economy in America ever going to recover so that I can actually retire like I plan to retire? Am I going to be okay? Will my marriage survive? Will I be lonely? Or will I be loved? Will I ever be free of an addiction? Questions are really important in life. In fact, a lot of very wise people say, Asking the right question is more important than getting a good answer. Because if we ask the wrong question, we can have a great answer, and we're going to be way out in Timbuktu. But if we ask the right question, even a mediocre answer at least gets us in the ballpark. But I want to talk to you today about questions at an even higher level than that. Because the way we deal with our questions, the doubts in our life, the direction we choose to go with them determines whether we live a life of faith or a life of isolated cynicism in our lives. We're going to talk about biblical faith today. What does it mean to have faith according to Jesus, according to the Bible? And we've distil- I've distilled it down to one short phrase that you can probably easily remember Doubt's direction determines life's destination. I'm really proud of myself. There's a lot of D's in there. I've never created a saint with that many D's in. Now, in the Bible, it talks about faith and faith having a direction. In James 2.17, it says, Faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, think about it. Action requires movement. Action requires taking a direction. This is both a spiritual principle and a normal principle in just our relationships and all of life. Our action around questions, our faith, and the direction it goes determines what kind of life we'll have. Take, for example, I've told this story in in another environment, and so I'm going to try to make it quick and not not bother you too much with it, but... The last 11 years while we were living in Oregon, my wife and I lived in this beautiful subdivision with 200-foot Douglas firs and lots of common property and paths, and we had a homeowners association. I was on the board there for about 9 or 10 of those 11 years, and I was president for what seemed like an eternity, but it was only three years, of the homeowners association. And the reason it seemed like the eternity is because we had the three amigos in the, in the, in the homeowners association. And the three amigos consistently caused pain similar to what would be defined as somebody taking their fingernails across a chalkboard all day long. Now these guys, I think I told you and told some of you at least in one in, in, in instance, I had been elected president for two weeks, hadn't even signed the paperwork to become authorized to sign finances or do anything with finances yet, and one of them calls me on the phone and accuses me of embezzlement. Another one had just gotten done suing the schools for $175. And the other one, who lived next door to one of our board members, who was the most, she worked the hardest of anybody in the whole homeowners association, he was so angry at her that he put up security cameras Those little home computer security cameras, he put them up on one side of his house. Not by any entrances, they were all pointed at her house so he could tape record her and watch her without her knowing it so he could think of think of coming up with dirt to complain about for her. It was just a wonderful place to lead. Homeowner's meetings every year were the most enjoyable experience I've ever had. You see, the problem with the three amigos is in any kind of meeting... They had lots of doubts and lots of questions. But they weren't honest doubts and honest questions because they weren't really looking for an answer. They were asking the questions to assert their agenda, to protect their own desires and their own plan. And you could ask, af- they could ask a question. You could answer it in black and white. And three to five minutes later in the same meeting, they would ask the same question again. Everything was barbed. Everything was cynical. Doubts, direction, determines life's destination. Faith involves risk. It involves action. It involves movement. And when we have doubts and when we have questions, we have the choice of either moving into the freedom of faith or we have the choice of moving into the concrete bunker of cynicism and consumerism. It's one of two choices. And all of us, at times, are the three amigos. So let's back away from that for a second. Last week we celebrated Easter, the resurrection. That Jesus came to earth, died for us, took our sins upon himself, rose again to give us his spirit to help us live. What a great thing. Within that whole context of Jesus' story, we have things that we believe, like the virgin birth, that he came to earth born of a virgin. That's kind of hard to believe at times, isn't it? I mean... The girl that got pregnant next door last week, that's what she said, right? And did you believe her? He came to earth. He lived as we lived, sinless, tempted by everything, and yet we struggle on a weekly basis with our own temptations, wondering how to be free of them. Jesus came. He was beaten. He was killed on a cross, and He rose three days later. When's the last time you saw somebody who rose from the dead? Much less somebody who who was nails through his hands, through his feet, a great big hole in his side where a spear went in and all the way up into his lungs and his heart and water and blood flowed out, just like a deer you're trying to shoot and bleed and hung out to dry. And yet three days later, he rises from the dead. Yet billions of people throughout history and today believe that very thing. And I do myself. We place our faith in the fact that that is real. But even if we believe that, there's still so many questions. If Jesus came and died for our sins, why do we struggle so much with sin? If He triumphed over death, why do we still die? If He came to heal us and give us the power to heal heal others, then why are we sick and why do when we pray for people, are they sometimes, oftentimes, maybe not healed? Why do we not see more of that? If He is truly a loving Savior, then why do millions of people not know Him and why is there a hell? If he really loves us so much, why is there, is there so much pain in life? And why doesn't he seem to rescue us from it sooner? And why does it sometimes seem like he's so hard to find and understand? All these questions can be summed up in this idea of what does it mean to have faith? Hillsboro, Oregon, a little over a year ago, I was sitting next to the. Uh, I was at a wedding, sitting next to the uh, stepdad of the groom, and we had a great conversation about faith. At the end of it, he said, "You know, I admire my stepson because he has so much faith, but I could never have that faith in God, and I could never follow God because I have so many doubts." And then a couple of weeks ago, someone I love deeply had a had a conversation with him about the fact that. His whole question was, how can you have faith with so many questions and so many doubts? But faith is, for many of us, we try to make it into this finished piece of pottery, this thing that we know what it's for. We know this is a vase or we know this is a bowl or we know it's a piece of art to put on display and it's this nice finished piece of work. But the reality is, and we're going to look at it a little bit more, that faith is really more about that lump of clay still on the potter's wheel. Because faith isn't this finished product. It isn't this belief that we have with absolute certainty all the time. It is this story of our life with God being spun around in this potter's wheel where He's molding us and pressing us and shaping us and sometimes stripping away things and sometimes just taking the whole thing and crunching it down and starting over just like a master potter would do. Our story of faith is Is a story being written all the time. You know, in all truth, I struggle with faith on a regular basis. Will God act in this situation that I'm facing today or tomorrow? Will He really prove this to be true? Will it be right? Can I be a good enough husband or father? And the storyline of that faith struggle comes out of the fact that I, like you, were raised as an imperfect person with imperfect parents or I, like you, have done things that have have hurt my wife and my kids. And that storyline makes me wonder, can I have enough faith to be the husband and father God wants me to be? You know, when all those pain things happen, when we screw up, when we do stuff, When we go into those storylines, this whole faith journey is a lot more like, maybe not just so much like a potter's wheel, but more like a merry-go-round. Do you remember those times when you were little and your dad would take you out and throw you on the merry-go-round or the playground? And he would sit there and get you going as fast as you can. And you'd have a hard time holding on and you were getting sick. You're about ready to puke, but you're having a good time. And everything around you starts to blur and you can't really see everything around you because you're just going around and your head's swimming And your stomach's swimming and your ears are swimming and everything just wants to just fall off. But I do remember going around and spinning and faith is a little bit like going through all that pain, going through all that difficulty, going through all that nauseousness, that confusion of life. But coming around and seeing that glimpse of your dad, it seemed like the only thing you could see coming around that merry-go-round with clarity was the glimpse of your dad pushing that merry-go-round. A potter's wheel and a merry-go-round. They're good images of faith. But all too often, we approach faith, especially in the Christian world, with a kind of a glossy coat over the stories of the Bible. We look at the stories of the Bible and we look at people like Abraham, this great patriarch of faith, this guy who is considered one of the greatest religious figures of all time because of his great faith. He's celebrated by Christians, Jews, and Muslims alike. As a man of great faith, the Bible talks about him as his faith credited him as righteousness. It made him a righteous man. And what was his faith like? His faith was mixed with fear and doubt. Think about it. The story of Abraham he goes, passes, sojourns through these countries where there's other rulers. And he's got this outrageously beautiful wife and he's scared because he thinks that the rulers will want his wife and he's going to kill him or, or the rulers are going to kill him. So he decides to take his wife who is, sorry, it's not Arkansas, but it's, it's also his sister. And he decides to pass her off as his sister twice. She almost gets married off to the rulers of the lands that she's in because of his fear. And all the women said, I want a husband like that. Or look at... Abraham's life later, he's been given this promise of a child, but his wife is barren. And she's at the age where she's not going to be able to have kids anymore. And so he decides that the way to fulfill God's plan is to exercise, along with the encouragement of his wife, to exercise a common tradition back then that he would sleep with his wife's maidservant and the child would be adopted as his own to be his heir. And it ends up being a tragic mistake, doubt, Caused a tragic mistake in his life. Throughout history, we see it. Martin Luther doubted many times, even after his conversion, whether God was real. John Bunyan, the great author, as he was going to the stake, To be burned at the stake, he had questions as to whether God was really real. Did you see an interview a couple years ago with Billy Graham? Billy Graham has asked the question, "Are you sure? How can you be so sure you're going to go to heaven?" And he says, "Well, I sure hope I'm going to be there." There was a little tentativeness in his voice. Even Mother Teresa, three weeks before she received this, gave this faith-filled speech to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. She wrote this to a a friend of hers, Reverend Michael Vanderpeet. She said, Jesus has a very special love for you talking to him. But as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see. I listen and do not hear. The tongue moves, meaning prayer, but does not speak. She says, I want you to pray for me that I let him have a free hand. You see, doubt is a very real part of life. All of us experience it. You are certainly not alone if you have doubts as to this faith walk with God. Yet the Bible says this of faith and doubt. It says in Hebrews eleven six, And without faith it is impossible to please God. Great. Talk about pressure, huh? Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Clearly, faith is an important issue. How do we reconcile doubt and faith? Because even in this passage, in Hebrews 11, Abraham and several others in the Old Testament again are once again mentioned as these great people of faith, but they had doubts. And then we look further and we see six times in the Gospels where Jesus references doubt as being something that can prevent or inhibit God's blessing in our life. So then the question becomes, What? how do we reconcile faith and doubt? How do we understand when doubt is something that inhibits God? And how do we underso- understand when doubt is really a simple part of faith and it's okay? We're going to take and look at a number of different biblical stories today that are only going to start to answer this question. I don't claim to answer this question in whole today. The first one happens right after Jesus' resurrection. About a few days after, he ends up meeting with the disciples. He ends up in a room where all the disciples are minus Thomas. And he talks to them. It's a week later after that, the Bible says, before he actually appears to the disciples when Thomas is present. Thomas, during that week, came back to the disciples and said, I don't believe that he showed up. Can you imagine that conversation on how long that week must have been for both of the disciples who saw him and for Thomas? Thomas is probably sitting there saying, man, if he showed up, why? where is he? Why doesn't he show up again? How come this has taken so long? It must have seemed like a year. Can you imagine the conversations the other disciples having with him? Thomas, he really showed up. We saw him. We touched him. It was really him. And Thomas going, yeah, if you have to believe that, that's nice. It sounds like a grief-induced apparition that you had. And then they keep having that conversation. How How many ways can you have that conversation? Thomas, we really did see him. Thomas, we really did see him. Thomas, we really did see him. And you know... Sometimes we treat our arguments with people about religious things, about spiritual experiences in that same way. We just try to say the same thing over and over again trying to convince them that it's going to happen. But Jesus shows up a week later in the room and he says to Thomas, Peace be with you. Actually, the whole disciples. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here in the holes of my hands. Put your hand in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You know, when we think about this thing, that it takes faith to please God. When we think about that pressure, it's so easy in this faith walk, whether we've decided to follow Christ or whether we're still making that decision, it's so easy for us to worry about, do we have enough faith? Do we have enough faith to please God? Because, you know, we look at the sprays and say, we have to please God and God's a big God. How can we please him? That means we have to have a big faith, right? How can we prove we have enough faith to please him? And some of us respond then to that demand for faith and say, you know what, I know I don't have enough to please a big God like that. So we give up on faith. And it's not even so much that we give up on the faith of God, it's that we give up the faith in ourselves to ever be good enough. But there's another way to respond to faith that's also recorded in the Bible. It's a story of this loving, desperate dad whose son is sick and dying. And he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, would you heal my son? And Jesus says, Do you have faith? And I'll bet internally at that moment that guy's reaction was, Oh, crud. I don't know if I have enough faith. I don't know. How do I know? Do I really have enough faith? I probably don't. I'm doomed. My son's doomed because the responsibility is all on me. But here's his answer to Jesus. He says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And what was Jesus' response to him? Jerk, you see me do all these miracles? What do you think? Why can't you have enough faith? You should be confident, right? No, that's not Jesus' response at all. Jesus' response was he was pleased with that kind of faith. And he healed his son You know, we often bash doubting Thomas. We often talk about how much of a lack of faith he was and how bad of an example he is for us as followers of Christ. But I think that completely misreads the story. Because the fact of the matter is, Thomas was still in the room. He didn't leave the game even though there had been a week where he was going, yeah, you guys aren't right, he was still there. Even if he couldn't pursue, he was at least leaning in saying, God, I hope you're there. He was still in the room. Doubt's direction determines our destination. And these two people's faith, Thomas and the dad, the desperate dad, was built by either pursuing God Or at least staying in the room and leaning in, hoping, trying to stay in the game. You see, the doubt that is unpleasing is the three amigos kind of doubt. Where we sit back and we say, I'm just going to go in my bunker and you have to break down the walls. I've got all these questions and you can't answer them. So just prove yourself to me. Or this kind of three amigo response that says, this is all about my rights. If you can't fit within my rights and the way I think things should be, then I want nothing of you. Doubt's direction determines our destination. If we choose self protection and withdrawal from God to put up walls, and we choose to look more towards our doubts, then all that happens is we move further into those doubts. And those doubts become bigger and bigger and bigger until that's all we can see. But Jesus asks us to move into him. So those doubts become less. There's even this interesting story found in Luke 1 of a godly person who chose the wrong direction. He chose to this concrete bunker of cynicism in his life. It's the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth Now, Zechariah is a priest. He gets to do his rounds serving in the temple in Jerusalem. It's a very high, honored position. He's been serving most of his life, but he and Elizabeth, in a culture that highly values kids, and if you don't have kids, you are less than, they're barren. And they're well past childbearing age. They're old. He's been serving God faithfully in spite of this pain for years. He goes to the he goes to the temple one time, and by lot he gets chosen to have this great honor of offering incense in the holy place in the temple, which is an honor that you would only get at best once in a lifetime as a priest. This is a great thing. God has laid his hand on him and said, You are favored today, Zechariah. This is awesome. One of the greatest things of his life. And he walks in there, and he's doing his thing, flipping the incense around, whatever they did. I don't know. And here, an angel of the Lord says in Luke 1, uh, verse 11, An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of the incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or ferment a drink, which was a Jewish thing, meaning he was going to be set apart into a special religious service. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And many of the people of Israel will will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah asked the angel, how can this be? I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. And the angel answered, said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to you to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the proper time. There's a lot in this story. First is what a huge gift. This barren couple beyond. This is going to be a miracle like Abraham and Sarah. His wife gets to have a child and not only have a child that removes the shame of everybody else putting her down because she hasn't had children in that culture, but this is a child that's going to do great things for God. And she gets another benefit. She gets her husband silent for nine months so he can't ask for the remote. And she can say, I didn't really hear you. And so she gets to watch chick flicks the whole time. No, seriously, the the angel... Zechariah responds, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel affirms that Zechariah is in unbelief. He is in a position of the concrete bunker of cynicism. And isn't it so easy? This is a three amigos moment for him. It's so easy for all of us to have these three amigos moments. Where are the pain points in your life? Where are the disappointments? It's so easy to take those things into this concrete bunker because we think there's more safety there. And Zechariah, because of the pain of not seeing a child, has become cynical. This great priest who has taught the people of Israel all of his life about the story of Abraham and Sarah, who a little over a thousand years ago, the same thing they experienced... He's taught that story hundreds if not thousands of times. He's been selected this particular day to go into this holy place. There's only one way in and one way out. So when this angel appears to him, he knows that's got to be an angel because nobody else is in there. This man who's old, wise, expected to have great maturity, this spiritual giant, still questions And the angel says, you'll be silent for nine months. Now, I'll bet that some of you are thinking, gosh, so you mean if I don't have enough faith that God's going to punish me? Right? It's a logical conclusion. If I don't have a faith, God's going to punish me. If I have to worry about saying the wrong things and getting penalized, then where does that leave me? But you know, if you responded to that and even the story of doubting Thomas as being a penalty like I did this last week when I first read this, and then I had a good conversation with someone which made me think about it differently, then the reality is we have not really ingested, taken ownership of what Christ did in the first place to come and take all the condemnation away. We haven't learned what we talked about in the last series on the Beatitudes, that we already really have nothing to give back to God, which He hasn't already given us. So why would we get in this position where we're afraid of the punishment and think God is going to be evil to us and mean to us if we don't respond perfectly? Instead of this good God who has pursued us, given us all we have, and asks us to give back to him what he's already given us. Don't you think God knew Zechariah's heart and his position of being in that concrete bunker of cynicism before you came to him, before he came to him? Don't you think God knew that? Is this silence really punishment or is it a gift? He gets this gift of being silent to meditate on how awesome God is to give him this blessing. God, in response to his lack of faith, doesn't not bless him. He still blesses him and he gives him a gift of being silent for nine months, which not only is a huge faith builder to him, because all he has is the ability to ponder what God's doing. He can't argue. He can't say anything about it. And it's a faith builder to other people. You see, God is always about wanting to draw us into faith. He's not about punishing us for it. God is so merciful. And if God is so merciful with this spiritual giant, how much more merciful will he be with our faith and doubt struggles? And Jesus goes on then in another place to tell this story in Matthew 13 about the mustard seed. And he says at that time, at that time, the mustard seed was the smallest seed that anybody on earth knew about. And Jesus directly compares this small seed to faith. He says, if we take this small seed and this is your faith and you plant it, look what happens. This great big bush grows and tree and birds build their nests in it. It's this amazing thing from something so small. You see, God is always working to help our unbelief. And all he's asking us is to choose a direction that our faith goes. It doesn't matter if our faith is big or small. It doesn't matter if it's a mustard seed or it's a great big whatever. All he wants is to choose the direction of which we go with faith. Are we going to go into this concrete bunker of cynicism and put up walls and not be open to the real answer, not be open to risk, take no movement? Or are we going to just say, God, this is all I got. Is it good enough? And you know what? His answer always is, it's good enough. His answer always is, Lord, help my unbelief. Yes, I'm going to help your unbelief. Don't choose the direction of the concrete bunker. It really isn't safe. It really doesn't protect your pain. It just allows it to fester. You know, faith is not right beliefs. It's right relationship And all God asks us to do is to lean into him. If we can't take a step, just stay in the room and lean. The last couple of years, there have been a lot of books written on people who have been leaving the church because of disillusionment or frustration or because they think the church is ineffective. I've felt that way at times. On the West Coast, when I was consulting with churches, oftentimes I'd go to a church and I'd I'd ask them to raise their hands. How many of you feel like going to Sunday morning or going to church is worth it? And I would consistently get 50 to 70% of the people raising their hands saying, I'm not really sure it is worth it. And what I ran into so often and had to fight in myself, but ran into so often in churches that I was trying to help turn around and become more effective was everybody was living in this concrete barrier of cynicism. Everybody basically went and said, I am following Christ. I'm going to believe in Him, but I'm going to sit on the bench because things didn't work, because I was hurt, because I was frustrated, because things didn't work out the way I thought they should today if you have made that decision already to be in the game and follow Christ that you have made him the leader of your life i want to ask you what areas of your life have you chosen to just put inside that concrete wall and sit on the bench i got to tell you it's 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 difficult I'm speaking for myself right now. It's difficult to read the Bible. I believe that people can be healed. I've seen my dad healed. I've seen myself healed. I prayed for people that were healed miraculously. But it hasn't always happened. I've also had friends who have died. And I don't understand that. And sometimes that's really painful. But you know, for me, a temptation has been to stick myself over here in this concrete bunker of cynicism and say, I don't know if I should really ag- aggressively risk continuing to pray for healing when it may not happen. And it may not be healing. Maybe it's, maybe it's provision. Maybe it's financial freedom. Maybe it's res- resolution of issues in your marriage. Maybe it's getting a good job that you really want. What areas of of your life have you got to the point that sometimes it just, it almost feels hollow for you to continue to pray about because it just hasn't worked out quite right the way you want it to yet. And so you kind of sit over here and you put the walls up and say, yeah, it's okay for God to pray, for other people to pray, I suppose, maybe, but I'm just going to sit back or I'm not going to keep praying. You know what? I want to invite us as a church to step out of that and say, you know what? If I, pray, I have to pray for people to be healed a thousand times and I only get to see one, I'm going to do it for the one. To me, that seems like it's more in line with the kind of active faith that God wants us to live. He's just saying, faith is active. Just give us what we have. I don't care how big it is. Just give what you have. And I want to talk to you for a second. If you're here and you have not made the decision to make Jesus the leader of your life, This is a big issue for you probably because most of you who who have not made that decision are probably sitting there going with the same question I had from the friend a couple weeks ago. How can you have faith with so many doubts? You see, faith is one of these things that builds on itself. And I would hope and I would invite you to make the decision to make Jesus the leader of your life. But even if you're not ready to do that today, I would at least say this to you. How many of your questions and doubts are this concrete barrier to protect yourself, to try to prove yourself, to try to make yourself good enough for God? You know, you can't be good enough. You're never going to be good enough. And you know what? You're never going to have all the questions answered. Are your questions honest? Or are you sitting over here saying, "Eh, I'm just going to ask these questions to keep people away. I want to invite you to a position of honesty in your questions and say, God, this is what I think I know. And act on it. Hey, the worst that can happen is it's true. And God proves it. And then you take another step. And take another step. That's the reason I believe for one of the reasons for you, if you were trying to seek God and find him, I believe that it's critically important for you to get involved in prayer and in service and in mission and reading the Bible and doing the things that Christians and people who followed Christ throughout all the ages have done to hear His voice and to understand who He is. Because unless you do something active, unless you get off the bench and stop asking questions and staying at a distance, unless you get active, you will never experience this great faith that He wants you to experience. So can we do this today? Can we just close by asking God to help us get off the bench if we're in the areas we're on the bench? I think all of us are. We all have our Three Stooges moments. We all have our Three Stooges areas. I think the most beautiful beautiful lesson I've gotten from the Three Stooges is to see how easily I can be that way with God. So can we just pray all together and just say, I'll just do it and just agree with it if you want. Lord, I pray that you would help me live a life where I'm constantly engaged, looking for you, looking for ways to give back to you the seeds of faith you've placed in me, looking for ways to pray and see what you'll do, looking for ways... To uh, talk with people and see what you'll do. Lord, help us to become engaged. Lord, help us to find the areas where we should serve to make a difference. Lord, today we acknowledge that that your word says that faith is action. And Lord, I thank you as well that that you are so gracious and merciful that for someone like Zechariah, for someone like Thomas, who'd walked with you three years, for someone like this man who said, I don't know if I believe good enough. The response was always pleasing and good. Lord, I pray that you'd help all of us to see you that way. So that instead of being fortified, we could be free. instead of being sitting on the sideline as judges, we could be all in, 100% engaged to explore the mysteries of your faith and the mysteries of the wonderful things you want to do through our lives, the ways you want to heal, the ways you want to transform, the ways you want to bless. Because, Lord, it does say also in Hebrews 11 that your goal of faith is to bring blessing to our lives. So we ask for that today in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here and have not made the decision to follow Christ and you are ready to make that, I invite you to grab someone who you know does follow Jesus and talk with them and pray with them or come down and talk with one of us. If you're here today and you know of somebody or you have a need for healing, I want to encourage you to ask somebody to pray for you for that today. Okay? Let's live faith let's not live cynicism let's live faith god bless quest have a great week